Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Welcome to Green Rabbits. You actually did it. I did it. <laughs> you just made my whole entire day. You're welcome. You are listening to Green Rapids. Today we're going to talk about a couple of different things, um, mostly focusing on national parks and how they came to be and how they affected the indigenous peoples as they came into existence. Yeah. Um, and I think in this episode, what we also want to do is kind of find a commonality between things that we enjoy and then also understanding like their history and uh, maybe looking to move forward from that history effectively. Yeah. Because like, sometimes it's like a thing that we can take for granted without really realizing the price that it cost other people, you know? Um, and then I feel like, you know, in a lot of most of these cases, really like that cost a lot of blood to make a lot of these parks come into being. Yeah. And as you were saying that, I was also thinking about like, that's exactly how we get to the point of climate changing Mm -hmm. is we don't really understand the impacts of like what we're doing or what we can change by trying to gain in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, it's just an interesting topic. Um, but also something I really love is the national parks of Mm -hmm. this country. And so I kind of really love this discussion. Mm -hmm. Apparently, the minimum size for a national park is 1,000 hectares. Okay, so that is just because... What is a hectare, though? Um, probably a fancy, like, amount of acres. It's probably, like, what? I'm assuming... Hectares. Well, what's heck? Is that eight? That's eight. I was going to say, I'm assuming 8,000 acres. Two acres. 2,471. What, what the frick? Why would they measure it like that? It doesn't even divide cleanly. I want to talk like to 2, someone. It's 2,471.05. Okay. So Who did this? That's probably why Michigan doesn't have the ability to do that because we have... Uh, F the measuring system. Anyway, I actually have a bone to pick with the history of national parks. I mean, I'm happy that they're here, obviously. Yeah. Uh, I'm just kind of happy about how they went about it. Um, many of you might have remembered the term Manifest Destiny from your high school history class. And Manifest Destiny is basically, according to canacademy.org, is the idea that white Americans are divinely ordained to settle the entire continent of North America. So the ideology is basically <laughs> like, God wants white people to come in and remove or destroy the native population so that white people can thrive in these beautiful spaces. I have a question. That's Manifest Destiny. Is that actually based on, like, a religious thing? Yes. I mean, it's basically the whole, like, America thing. Like, that's how, like, the America started. I know. It's just, it's so odd to me that, like, we even, one, that concept is laughable. It feels so weird to just hear that, like, we were supposed to do this. Yeah. And then everybody just went along with it. Isn't that wild? But also, like... Um, our dollar says in God we trust. Mm-hmm. Manifest destiny is woven into our history. Yep. But like separation of church and state. Not woven into the history. Are you sure, Nancy? It's written into the Constitution. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Can we talk about... No, no I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Current <laughs> events because that is Mm-mm. a big bone to pick. We don't have enough time. Yeah. Um, so... Manifest Destiny is kind of then what sparked the idea of what national parks or maybe not national parks specifically. But it started the mindset that like everything that was here was for the taking. Yeah. There was no respect or acknowledgement of the native people that were here. 
Um, you may or may not have heard of the famous nature photographer Ansel Adams. That name is so familiar, but mm-hmm. I don't know enough. He about was Ansel like Adams. one of the first photographers to start to document um, a lot of the mm-hmm. natural okay. areas around, like moving into the West from like you know the original thirteen colonies and whatnot. And one of the things that he did is that he took these incredibly pristine photos of just like untouched wilderness and so he the way he's like presenting this and marketing this is that's like this perfect untouched wilderness just there for the taking Mm. so that really like he really just projected the white gaze onto this landscape and was like hey look there's all this beautiful land we need to move out west and that's honestly one of the like at this time photography was just becoming really popular and really portable so he was able to just like travel and the thing is like there were people in all these oh, places totally. that he was going to. I mean, are these his photos right here? These are not his photos. Okay. These are from a different photographer. Um, his name is Huffman. Okay. Um, but Maybe this, documented a little bit more accurately. He documented the people of this place. Yeah. yeah. Now, obviously, he did it through the white gaze also mm-hmm. and like enforced a lot of stereotypes about the natives with a lot of these portraits. Yeah. But he at least acknowledged, like, hey, there's people here. Whereas Ansel Adams was just like, nothing's here. It's vacant. Lots available for sale, you know? And I think that also helps, like, reinforcing mindset, right? So when we Mm -hmm. think about some of the most intense moments in history where you're like, I can't believe people did that. Why would they do something like that? I Mm -hmm. think we also have to remember that there are people out there who are not only reinforcing this behavior, but they're giving you proof saying, like, well, it's just nature. There's no one living there. It's just, you know, free, open land and we should take advantage of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I actually learned a lot of this from my one of my art history teachers in college named Jill Schneider. And prior to this, like, I had never had art history taught in a way that really recognized or acknowledged a lot of, like, the racial undertones of a lot of, a lot of the art that we were witnessing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really great to kind of get that perspective and learn about, like, oh, shoot, there really are some differences and like Ansel Adams was like really really famous too, so he was just like a really big influence. Okay, but in American he, culture at the time, he died in nineteen eighty two. Oh yeah, he's gone. Now. <laughs> he lived forever and continued to spread lies. Um, no, he was born in nineteen o two. Even if there wasn't people there, it's because like things like the Trail of Tears. It's like things mm-hmm. because of displacement. Like that was kind of strategic. Mm-hmm. But there were still people living there, and mm-hmm. there are still people living in those spaces to this mm-hmm. day that still have much more right than we give them, yep. or they still have, you know, there's, I mean, we're all much more deserving than what most of the reservations in this country are given. Right. And so it's just, it's kind of bizarre that even in that year, with the understanding of how things have gone, they still stayed so far separated from the truth. Mm-hmm. But the first national park was created in 1872, Mm -hmm. Um, and that was Yellowstone. Ooh, that's a big one. Yeah, Yellowstone. And, I mean, we love love that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It's... Wolves can live there without getting hunted down too much. And it's so important to keeping ecosystems the way that they should stay, because although wolves are really scary... They all and they eat certain animals that shouldn't be there in abundance too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if you all know this, but I'm sitting here next to a wolf right now. Oh, yeah, they're out oh, there. She goes, <laughs> look out! <laughs> oh. 
So it's like you have Trail of Tears, then you have Gold Rush, and then you have national parks forming. Yeah. So there's like kind of like a racial impetus um, because obviously the people were racist against the indigenous people and they saw them as like savages. And then there's also like an economic impetus, which is a gold rush. Yeah. And then there's also like just like a social impetus because then, and like I guess you could say religious because Manifest Destiny was pretty religious because they really believed that God was like takeover homies. Um, and and then like I think what's weird about all of that too is like after pushing people out of their homes that do everything they can to preserve the space that they're in, we decide that these parks have to be preserved so that we can benefit from them and so we can keep them safe. And, it's and like, so what about the people who were there first? How can they benefit from it? Well, and they what don't. about the homes that they had on that land before? When now you're telling people, mm. you know, then you it becomes can't a museum here. of like, look at these people that used to live here. Exactly. And so I think it's just it's it's a beautiful way to celebrate, and I think it's so important to understand like what a preserve is. But mm. I also think it's also like really important to understand that there were hundreds of thousands of people living in these spaces mm -hmm. before they were, you know, displaced completely. Mm -hmm. And then one more fact I'll kind of throw out there. This is in Yosemite. In 1849 brought the gold rush. Um, a lot of non-Indian miners, well, non-Indigenous miners, um, to the Sierra Nevada. And they were ruthless, you know. So they not only decided that they were going to destroy the land there, but they were also going to do whatever they needed to do to get people away from that space so they could get what they needed. And the, you know, U.S. Army gets involved. Um, and then it kind of just became like a standard of lifestyle to be Euro-American. So mm -hmm. like the food, lifestyles, clothing, jobs, everything just became very colonized in that space. Mm -hmm. And then um, there's just this fact that in the early 1900s began to shrink dramatically um, the with the amount of people that mm -hmm. were living in those spaces. They started t disbanding villages of people who were indige indigenous to that space. Um, and then the housing was taken over by the National Park Service, mm -hmm. um, which uh, and it says right here on their website, uh, the National Park Service gradually dismantled the new village and the last homes were raised in 1969. Today, the descendants of the Yosemite pe native people live nearby, both nearby and scattered throughout the world. In 1990, um, there were only 400 in a nearby county and 500 in the other. So, you know, less than oh, a thousand a people. Population living in that area just over a hundred years later mm -hmm. um it's just again we have to talk about those differences like there were people in those spaces and there was culture in those spaces yeah and then the fact that they were basically forced to assimilate in order to survive and like eat you know wear our clothes and i mean by our i guess i mean american the colonizers clothes and like the Euro-American just styles of working and like the women were, you know, basically turned into domestic servants, really just providing like housekeeping and childcare services for the very people that came to remove them from their freaking land and took away their normal way of life. Which um, is like the generalized standard that we set for people of color in this country, because mm -hmm. as soon as, you know, 
um, black people were released from slavery or released yeah. <laughs> as soon as re- as soon as they slavery became a- illegal enough for people to not be able to do it at the scale they were doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, people were still, you know, stuck to working those jobs, yeah. being nannies and housekeepers mm-hmm. and cleaning people's homes mm-hmm. and their businesses and, you know, the jobs that nobody really wants to do. Yeah. And I mean, today we see it in our other cultures, immigrants mm-hmm. who come here what we ask them to do the jobs that we don't want to do I mean, even to this before day. they were immigrants when the west was still part of mexico like and colonization was moving you know west and south as these areas were being taken over like all of the native indigenous people you know some of which may or may not have been my ancestors mm-hmm. were also forced to take on these like more domestic roles of like servitude yeah and we see it a lot and actually oh my goodness i'm so glad we're talking about this because my dad um has a business where he um, like does renovations to people's like yards mm-hmm. and then he'll also do some of to their homes. Mm-hmm. Um, he'll, he used to do a lot of painting and stuff like that. And he says he has a really hard time getting certain dynamics of people, um, mainly black men to do these labor intensive jobs. Oh. And then he was talking about how he has a lot of Mexican um, people who like jump on the jobs. They're mm-hmm. there. He was like, they're there before me. They're ready to work. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, you have to realize a cultural difference, right? Yeah. There's so much pride behind working in that way for your culture. And this is something that we've talked about. Mm-hmm. And then in my culture, we're like, no way am I going to do these hard labor jobs. That yeah. brings me back to like a slavery mindset. I'm not going to mm-hmm. go work on rich people's homes when I'm oh, having a hard time yeah. affording to feed my family. Mm-hmm. And so I think, again, like we totally forget their entire like cultures. And I don't know, there are bits and pieces woven into this country that mm-hmm. are kind of beautiful. But they're also, also things that we really have to break down to completely understand, like why there's so many native people who don't have appreciation for our, our way of life today yeah uh, i mean to be honest i don't blame them so yeah, right. okay um but what what is your f- favorite national park because i know that you kind of grew up in an area where you could visit one frequently yeah so i would say i mean yosemite is probably one of my favorites that's okay. probably the first big national park i really went to when i was a kid i mean it's huge it's huge <laughs> yeah like um my best friend's family um the ramos they brought me along for one of their family camping trips once when i was a teen and it was actually my first time being out in like wilderness because i was such a deep city kid you know and you know because like i grew up like compton los angeles long beach so like seeing like the wild that was like super mind-blown because i was like holy cow that this is just like in movies you know oh totally well and then like think about the like how large of a city Compton is and like Los Angeles is and then you think about like going to Yosemite like the difference the difference is stark that's even wild even just like tasting the air for the first time so wild like such a wild difference to me how old were you when you first visited oh I must have been maybe 14 13 okay did that like spark your interest in nature in a large way or were you already like really interested in it before It actually, yeah, it made me more interested in nature because um, I had been, I mean, my family, my dad loves going to the Azusa Mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what we would do for holidays. And it is really cool, but it's also very tamed. Um, like there's roads, there's like paved trails, there's always people up there on holidays. So like it almost just kind of felt like going to a park than going out into the wilderness. Okay. Um, and yeah, then I know what you mean. Yeah, like there, every time we drove up there for a holiday, there would already be like, People swimming in the river, you know, like it was just already very, like I said, tame. Um, but I feel like going to Yosemite where 
they were like there's bear traps and that's <laughs> they have like bear proof <laughs> like uh like locker storage for your bear food. boxes that's uh-huh. when you know it's real we don't have that <laughs> yeah. i mean we have bears in michigan but like not to the point where like you have to worry about them mm-hmm. not no <laughs> yeah and then like all these precautions that you know the ramos family was taking to like just be safe and set up a camping area like you know it was like we were like roughing it um but don't you feel really connected too? Mm-hmm. like i think that's one thing that i noticed visiting a national park and um i went to a handful of national parks on a trip um mm-hmm. and i think just like being in those areas you don't really understand what the abilities of nature has until you've been to a space that's mm-hmm. been untouched for well over a hundred years mm-hmm. and that's why again like although We have to recognize the history of these national parks. We also have to realize the importance of having these spaces and the importance of continuing to preserve what we have currently. One of my favorite national parks is Glacier National Park in Montana. It was that sounds pretty. I cannot say enough good things about Glacier. Um, It was just one of the most vast, beautiful spaces I've ever been. Mm -hmm. Um, And then just a little fun fact I want to drop. The Hoi National Rainforest Mm -hmm. is in uh, the U.S. And I did not know that we had a United States National Rainforest. Is it in Florida? No, it's in Washington State. What the frick? Um, It sits just outside of a reservation um, where there's a lot of native culture. So um, shout out to all my Twilight lovers in the house. Uh, That's near Forks, Washington. (laughs) Like I was like, oh, I see now the rainy place that Bella Oh my goodness, I have... I could talk about this visit all day because it was just so like... Did you read the Twilight series? Oh, yeah. It was touching all of my my heart, like my deep spots. I'm like, oh, my goodness. True love was found in this forest right here on this beach. (laughs) I mean, Um, I was like, creepy love. Yeah, no, yeah, but isn't all love (laughs) kind of dark and creepy? (laughs) Incredibly toxic. Um, (laughs) No, but uh, the Hawaii National Rainforest um, is a part of the Olympic National Forest. And so if you want to visit a rainforest in this country you without can, having to have a passport yeah and it's the pacific northwest i would recommend it a trillion times it is pacific way northwest. way over there for us in michigan mm-hmm. um but not only that like you have cascades and you have like way just so many parks to visit in that mm-hmm. area but i just i love the fact that we have a rainforest in that area that it's near a reservation i thought we have a rainforest period i think that's so cool and going there like the trees are dripping in moss you know that li- that um, wildlife is so intense and vast and it's a little bit harder as a person Mm -hmm. to live there and i kind of like that nature's like "Uh -uh. Mm uh-uh i'm not gonna let you dry your clothes (laughs) that's true you're always just kind of damp right it is so damp there but it rains enough and Mm -hmm. holds enough moisture yeah i feel like that would have ruined my hair oh yeah no it's a good place to visit (laughs) Certain, certain people might not thrive there um, another thing I was reading too when I was looking at how National Park started is that even just like the way the stories are framed. So, for example, um, a lot of National Park action started through lobbying efforts from people like Lady Bird Johnson, who was the first lady of the United States. With that, mm-hmm. there are a lot of different reasons um, 
why it is important for people to invest in these spaces. Mm -hmm. Um, And some of those spaces are going to be like the National Park Service. Um, If you are interested in preserving these spaces, because although people have just been displaced and it doesn't allow for them to live there, I think that allowing for people to live there and the lifestyles that we have today would just completely ruin those spaces. Um, And as we've been kind of pressing on, the best way to reduce our carbon footprint is Mm -hmm. also to make sure that we have carbon eaters around Mm -hmm. and make sure that our our environments are flourishing. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Department of Natural Resources, DNR, um, is an agency, the agency um, in the state of Michigan um, charged with maintaining natural resources, Good. such as state parks, mm-hmm. uh, state forests, and recreational areas. Mm-hmm. Um, it is governed and director appointed by the governor. Um, and so there are places that, you know, make sure that we are protected. And I think we should continue to maintain that mm-hmm. um, because this land is legally set aside so that it can be safe from harm. Mm-hmm. Um, and as humans, we tend to be kind of harmful. We are. There's also um, in Michigan, we want to be 30 by 30, which is President Biden's 30 by 30 initiative to conserve at least 30 percent of land and ocean in the United States by 2030. Mm. It's a land conservation Mm -hmm. um, to have at least 30% of land and ocean in the United States by 2030. Um, And in Michigan, we are at 19.2%. Although uh, we are looking to be carbon free, (laughs) but I think it's 45. And I'm I'm not sure that we're on our way there. Um, But in Michigan, we have 19.2% of land that is currently protected, Mm -hmm. which is 7.89 million acres of federal, state, and local conserved lands, Mm -hmm. private preserves and conservations of agricultural easements oh, interesting. um so we do have quite a bit yeah um but i mean when you really think about how much land that means we need to preserve as a country um 30 by 30 that's quite a bit and so um i think it'd be really cool to just buy some land and i could have my own little mini nature preserve if you want to talk about the neighborhood garden that you help run Um, There are things like that. So Mm -hmm. neighborhood gardens are a way that we are going to help preserve the land that we have. One, we're going to feed our communities. And then two, we're going to make sure that we have um, biodiversity in this Mm -hmm. area, that we're going to try to plant the native plants so that we can thrive in these spaces. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I'll give you a little platform for RPN. So one of my... Like, I have, like, a seasonal job with the Roosevelt Park Neighborhood Association as a community gardener. And basically what I do is I manage a little garden in the middle of the hood in the Roosevelt Park neighborhood. We love that. The hood. Um, And I basically just help manage it and get gardeners organized and do some programming and things throughout the summer. Um, But I also kind of like teach people how to grow their own food. Okay, cool. Um, One of the big goals for this garden is to create like a space for food sovereignty skills um, and for food security skills. Because if people learn how to grow their own food, obviously that's like lesser dependency on the capitalist system. Yeah. Um, so it's really great to just teach people how to grow their own tomatoes and vegetables. Um, it is a mostly Hispanic and black community there. So, you know, and then thankfully I'm bilingual. So like, I, it's just like a really great job. And it's also really great just meeting people with families who are like, I want to feed my kids healthy food, but you know, groceries are getting so expensive. Um, I'm sure most of you have noticed just like the ever increasing cost of food. Yeah. Um, so like, you know, with food inflation happening and these people in basically like a food desert, 
um, seeking just to have like healthy food for their kids. Like it's just nice to have like a way to provide that for these families. Um, so some of the things that I do other than like growing some vegetables for the farmer's market and helping people, you know, just guiding them and setting up the garden and things. Um, but another thing that we're also working on doing is planting native plants around yeah. the outside of the garden, like in, you know, the non food producing areas. Is that for pollinators? It's for pollinators. Oh, I love that. Yeah, so we're actually working with a landscaper from Reverie Studio. Her name is Rebecca Marcotte. Okay. And um, she's a landscaper who's, pre- like, an expert in, like, native plants and landscape design using native plants. And we are we're able to work with her thanks to some assistance from the John Ball Zoo. Mm-hmm. Um, like, they're kind of sponsoring the project. Which and they is really gave you cool. a bunch of seeds, didn't they? Or mm-hmm. who was that? They did, um, and then I also have a bunch of seeds from the Pierce Cedar Creek Institute. Very cool. Um, so just like a lot of really, like it's just really great seeing community kind of come together to support this too, like the mm-hmm. garden. Um, but like you know, we're also concerned about biodiversity. Like currently, the garden does have some native plants. Okay. Um, that were planted, but it was like pre-COVID and before I was managing the garden. So, a lot of invasive species have been starting to try and take over. Yeah. Um, like the tree of heaven. Okay. If you guys see a tree of heaven, chop it down, <laughs> um, burn it. You have to look that up because you have to make sure you're talking. About the right oh, tree make sure, yeah. Make sure it's the right tree. If you have, there's an app called seek by iNaturalist and it's a plant ID app. Okay. Um, and you can also earn little badges and stuff when you Very discover cool. new species or like when I think I recently got, hold on, I want to check what my current level of explorer is. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you have level. I mean, does that make you want to do it more? You yeah. get like a little badge and they're like, hey, you did yeah, it. Yeah, because I'm like, I freaking did it. <laughs> uh, so I got, where's my badges? How do I look at myself? Achievements, challenges. I think it's in achievements. So I'm at the level of explorer. But for example, I started off at the level of, I think like, I don't know, some like newbie level. But oh, but you, that was the app that you were using when we went on the hike, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I was like, oh, I found another plant that I didn't get That before. was super cool. Yeah. Um, so I guess one other place I want to plug before we do our call to action and kind of end our conversation um, is Highlands mm-hmm. in uh, – the Walker Grand Rapids area. Mm-hmm. Um, Blanford Nature Center oh, is yeah. the founder. Um, and they talked about acquiring a neighboring golf club to expand their nature center. Um, oh. Noting that would be their last major conquest for many years. So they That's wanted to have a really cool. great thing. In 2017, mm-hmm. uh, the Land of Conservancy of West Michigan helped. Um, so they collaborated, collaborated and purchased 121 acres um of the of the golf course in uh, grand rapids mm-hmm. and they turned that into our area of recreation and education yeah. mm-hmm. um, and so i just think that's a really cool way um because it's noted like the, there's a long-term restoration of this landscape to allow the land to heal and flourish after a decades of abuse right mm-hmm. yeah. um it'll bring sustain substantial improvements to water and air quality in the city and help with the city's goal of increasing the urban forest canopy yeah um, the project also offers hands-on educational opportunities 
communities and is a model for large-scale urban restoration in the region. Mm -hmm. um, so this is actually on the Highlands website itself. I would definitely recommend going to visit and just taking a look. Nice. Um, but these are just ways that we can help encourage the areas that we live in mm -hmm. to restore spaces. Like it is great to have places to golf, but like how many do we need and what does that do to our nature to yeah, destroy it like that? Yeah, because monoculture. Totally, and like it it's continues. just like the same kind of grass, and then maybe like two or three different types of trees. Yeah, and it continues to reinforce the idea that we can do whatever we want to mm -hmm. whatever we want if we have the dollars to do so. Yeah, not um, to mention the pesticides and weed killer that they probably use to maintain totally it, poisoning the water table. So even if people wanted to live there, they would really have to restore that space anyway. Mm -hmm. So something that I'm going to just do call to action is pick a park, take a hike. <laughs> and boycott golf course <laughs> <laughs> sorry i'm like such a boycotter <laughs> nancy oh my god i love the the contrast between what we just said <laughs> like i'm like it's okay take it easy this month and nancy's like if you go golfing and i see you out there i mean meaning golf is different five points from gryffindor <laughs> <laughs> mini golf is cute um go mini golfing instead of <laughs> instead of like big open unnecessary <laughs> amounts of grass golfing no but really um, i mean my call action call to action is just to be um pick a park and go to them um mm -hmm. and potentially find a way to support them by either um joining one of their educational groups mm -hmm. um you can donate you can just um educate yourself on the types of preservation they do and then be sure to support them in that way mm-hmm Awesome. Thank you for listening to Green Rapids today. Green Rapids. We appreciate you so much. See y'all soon. Bye. Peace out. Peace.